You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Ellie was a gender non-conforming 90s kid in the UK. She became a patient of what came to be the Gender Identity Development Services at the Tavistock. She was seen at the time by Dr. DeChegley, a child and adolescent psychiatrist and the founder of JIDS. Ellie describes her psychological treatment with him and her decision really early on in life that medicalization was just not an option. She tells us about her family life and coming to terms with being gay in her teen years. Ellie is now married to her wife and living happily. And she also describes that gender dysphoria is just something that she and many other lesbians simply learn to live with. She also offers some really interesting insights about the way technology use, and social media in particular, can mimic a kind of schizophrenic experience, with too many competing voices and opinions influencing the minds of teenagers today. She tells us about being featured in a BBC Two children's program as a kid, which you can see if you click on the link in our show notes. We also talk about the book that Hannah Barnes has written, soon to be published, for which Ellie was interviewed. So if you've ever wondered about the desistance literature and hoped to tie a kind of human story to all of those statistics, then I think you're really going to appreciate this conversation with Ellie. Hi, Stella. I'm I'm really excited to have our guest on today. Do you want to tell us who we have? Well, we have Ellie Hathaway. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, I I spoke to you a month or two ago and I, I was fascinated to meet you. Um, and if you if you want to tell us your story from the beginning, people will kind of understand why I was suddenly very, very exercised. I think you messaged me on Twitter. I don't remember how we got to know each other, but I certainly was really enthralled when we spoke. I think I messaged you on Twitter with something angry that I said to you to say, you need to look at this or something like that. Um, and then you responded back with a um Yes, that's fine. Who are you? <laughs> and I was like, and, um, you know, you didn't rise to me. You didn't. I don't think you even picked up that I was being like quite passive aggressive. But I was telling you that like, where are all the previous younger Tavistock patients that were treated there um, before this time now? And like, what, what you know, where are they? Who are the who are because I know they exist, and I was one of them. So I was saying to you like they treated people who definitely went on to transition and they also treated people who didn't go on to transition and like, where's the information? Did they do any research? And it turns out probably that they don't have any, but um, so who's, where are those people now? Are they just staying out of the whole thing? But I'm one that kind of put my hand up and was like, um, I just want to say, <laughs> um, so you were there. So when were you born and why did you end up in the Tavistock? And I think it was 1992 yeah. for the Gender Identity Development Services. Uh, so I was born in 1983 um, in September. So it's my birthday next week. Thank you very much. I will be 39. <laughs> oh, okay. happy birthday. <laughs> I'm like trying to pretend it's not happening. Um, and yeah, so 
from a very young age, like literally um, being two years old, I was really rejecting of anything that came at me in the shape of a dress or a nice outfit, apparently. Now, of course, I was a kid, so I don't remember doing it, but I know that I did do it. Um, My mother, you know, had to deal with the fact that she had a little girl that did not want to wear any of the stuff, but... Um, that was around the age of sort of two, two and a half that I started to behave that way, apparently. Um, I think it was exactly at the time that my sister, younger sister was born or around the time my younger sister was born, which is a whole theory I have about what happened um, to some extent. And then... Well, can you can you take a tangent there? This is interesting. What is the theory? Uh, I'm curious. Well, Me th- too. My theory is that my, my sister was very pretty and cute and I didn't feel like this is tapping into gender dysphoria, so I didn't feel I, I just maybe that formative first um, self-knowledge or self-awareness when you, you're in maybe nursery or something and looking at other kids, and then you, you don't feel like you're little and pretty and cute. You, I've, I'm redheaded, so I'm already, I'm already like in a minority because I'm ginger, <laughs> um, and then I'm freckly. And, you know, all these other things which I can go to talk about with gender dysphoria. But and then my sister was um, blonde and had lovely, you know, big eyes, gorgeous big eyes and very went on to become very pretty, very, very pretty. Um, And I think I've got my own theory that it was a, you know, instant one, the attention had gone to her. You know, and uh, any toddler doesn't like that, do they? Any, any, the firstborn doesn't like the uh, the attention going on to somebody else. You're here all the time now. This is, <laughs> I have to share this with you. So it's that like rebellion or first rebellion and rejection. So I don't know if it was what can I do to get attention or whether it was, well, that if I'm not what she is, then what am I? So, but that's when I first started to behave in that way, apparently reject it but before that i couldn't reject it could i what what is i was i was i was an infant infant what is the age difference pardon what is the age difference between the two of you exactly two years exactly two years okay two years and two so you started to have these two two two-year-old kind of existential crises when your sister was born she was a baby which i think is interesting because at that moment you couldn't really know whether she would turn out to be pretty or well, feminine or I, lovely. I would argue a little bit differently. I would say she was born at two. So you're just usurped by the, I'm just imagining this. <laughs> Let me run with it. And you're usurped, you know, the attention is spread. So you're kind of given the side eye to the little one, but everybody's given all the attention to the little one. They're talking about how gorgeous she is. And as you're coming into consciousness over the next, thir- you know, 12, 12 months, 18 months, you're learning about the concept of pretty and you're learning about the concept of, oh, isn't she so gorgeous? And then, oh, you're a good girl, too. Yeah. And you're literally as you're coming into consciousness of life, it's it's going in. It rings really true for me as a theory, I have to say. Yeah, because then it, my own theory. And at like, the same. My own. Theory, oh, at, my own. When I was a kid was my my mother and my sister, very, very feminine. And I'd imagine like you, I just thought, oh, I'm I'm just bigger and like the way you kind of saw yourself as redhead and freckly. It's just like, I'm not that. Do, do you know what I mean? So it, it rings very true for me. But sorry, you were going to say something. 
yeah, I th- the the then rejection stage started or went from two to four, like four. So definitely by four, that's what I was doing. So it wasn't immediate, but as I started to get control, uh, you know, the the time when when small children, toddlers, start to you know, no, I don't want it, you know, <laughs> chuck stuff back at you and not be a baby mm-hmm. to being more you know decide decision making of their or selective of their own things yeah um so that, that's right the power to say no the power to say no i don't want that um mm-hmm. and then and then that went on mm-hmm. from four right up through to the end of puberty pretty much but not there was stages beyond like 13 14 15 that i can definitely go into and then the tavistock time Probably around eight, nine, ten. That era was because I was. It was ninety two. Was I was nine, ninety two. So, yeah. Um, and I. So, what prompted your family to take you to Tavistock? I guess obviously you had been struggling with mom from a pretty young age about clothes and so on. But then what happened? Why did they take you to Tavistock at that point? So they don't really know the exact answer. My mum's best idea is that my dad researched it and found them. But because he was quite like, I think they were just worried that I wasn't happy. Um, I don't think it was about wanting to change me. Um, but some interesting things through me telling my mother I was going to be on this has come out about how how unhappy she was or how worried she was about me um, in the longer term, and and also because I was I got bullied a lot. I got bullied all the time because when I was six, I got my hair cut short, so I had short hair hair. And I and if you watch my YouTube film, the film that I made. I I did look just like a boy, so I was always being a boy. Like did say I wanted to be a boy. Wish I wish I'd been born a boy. Wanted to be a boy. Life would be so much easier if I was a boy. I want to do all these things, and everybody sort of doesn't like me doing them the way I do them. I want to I want to just play sport, um, you know, and be active. You know, I didn't see the house after school ever. Like I was in the woods doing stuff and I only had boyfriends like male friends that I played with and pretty much I was the leader <laughs> you know, and was in charge um and yeah so I had said that I wanted to be a boy and I don't know if they conflated that with being really unhappy with my bullying which was being bullied by people because every day of my life I got asked are you a boy or a girl like every day of my childhood so mm. by Mm-hmm. people that were not friends in my school you know just other people in school or people in the street people everywhere you go swimming and you get asked it my mum constantly had to explain what I was like you know if we went to Marks and Spencer's to go and buy something people be like say to me oh you know they'd they'd they gender me to be boy and my mum would actually say no sorry actually she, she's a girl and they'd be like hmm okay that's confused me, you know, so that was all going on then. Um, and we didn't have any groups that were like, don't misgender people and don't, you know, we just, my mum had to just constantly deal with this on her own. So my dad, I think through them discussing it was like, let's see what's out there. And then they found through, I don't know how they found it, but they did. Yeah. 
I have a question about this. So you, you talked about initially certain aspects of your refusal for like clothes or whatever was a, a way to kind of regain your power. And given that all these people were confused about your gender when you were a child at the time, do you remember that feeling empowering or did it feel belittling or did it confuse you further? I mean, and I'm sure you have a perspective now as an adult in hindsight, but like, what was that like when you were young? What the, the being, are you a boy or a girl question was just like, it was just tiresome more than anything. It was just, why does this matter? (laughs) And why as an adult or as a, school peer like do you need to make why do you need to ask and then the funny thing was the other day I went to a job at work and I got asked by a small child if I was a boy or a girl (laughs) and I said does it matter (laughs) does it matter why do you what do you think that's what I said Um, yeah so you know I remember as a kid it being incredibly tiresome being asked are you a boy or a girl everywhere you went are you a boy or a girl and then I remember it became really grating because I used to nearly anticipate it so I suppose self-consciousness was coming in that I knew we'd go in somewhere and inevitably I was going to be asked are you a boy or a girl and I realized I was starting to kind of tense up thinking oh here we go they're going to look at me it's going to be are you a boy or a girl I do, I do remember all that coming in. It was incredibly tiresome. Yeah. Is, is, I, then you is, just is get I like, remember it too. I'm a girl and I'm a girl. Yeah, you're a girl. And then you get the like, well, you don't look like a girl. You'd be like, okay. And then I used to think, well, what do girls look like? Um, sometimes that, you know, I used to think, what do girls look like? Um, you know, and I still say that about lots of things. Oh, you don't look like a whatever. Well, what does that look like? You know, that, that question. It's, it puts more like, a mirror to the person that's asking the question it's not about you like so um so yeah I got that mm-hmm. all the time and, and I, I, I was being it was bullying because I used to get like beaten up a little bit but I didn't get beaten up because I like I used to get the question or called a he she and then I used to respond with my fists because I was good at it <laughs> up until a point where puberty and then the boys turned to get better at that than I was because it was puberty and funnily enough they were they got stronger and they got the testosterone and I didn't get the testosterone but that was after that was after Tamstock obviously so yeah <laughs> and the, when I spoke to you there seemed to be another reason well I put this together and I might be wrong why you might have been brought to the to the to the gender identity services could have been maybe because your mother had her own experience as a child and so might have been kind of acquainted to having, you know, uh, uh, medical attention when you're a child. Yeah, so I think maybe, well, and not only that, but my mum was a nurse um, and then she and she was a health visitor. So she was in child development. So she, you know, I had a lot of um, medical influence in my family as well so there was there was a lot of like engagement with services like we were probably you know my dad had also had work that he you know that he so yeah so but my mum's um childhood history was having a what they called intersex but it was a development condition of sexual development which is um known as congenital adrenal hyperplasia which stunts growth and also can give you um atypical 
presentation of genitalia when in in infancy when you're born so my mum was born that way as well um and she's always had treatment for it including through great ormond street when she was a very small child um so i don't know if it was that she doesn't really make the connection herself but then my mum my mum's very like lives in the moment of things so she's not she's kind of like when we talk about this stuff she's like i dealt with it (laughs) i'm done like you know um you're you're fine she's not worried she's she's not worried about me now like at all um but i said i did say to her like but you must have really struggled with this stuff and she said i cried every day and i didn't even know i had no idea until i recently had this conversation when she said i cried every day about worrying about you basically so that was upsetting. So she was crying every day, worrying about you, while she had extraordinary treatment. You, you, you I believe she, your the whole family moved from Wales to London or near London for a year to get her treatment. They moved forever. No, they moved. Is forever. that right? Yeah, for, from did they from Wales from mid Wales to Essex in about 1960. My mum's side of the family, my mum's mum and dad moved. With her and the rest of well, they her younger sibling youngest um, sibling wasn't born yet, but moved to Essex to Chelmsford to be near to Great Ormond Street because my mum would need to have not only the treatment she was currently undergoing but continuing checks all the way through childhood to make sure that she was her growth development. And did you say she had a twin or something? She's got a younger sister and who also has the condition, but it wasn't as severe. She, my young, my aunt didn't need the same level of surgical intervention that my mum had, because it it's different in each child depending on, yeah, it's, di- it's different in each child and how it presents. So, yeah, I know <laughs> it's all it's all threaded through, and when I I discuss this with my friends now, who, with how interested I've got currently in this discussion. Um, you know, they won't be like, oh, yeah, we know, or whatever, like, or, oh, she's going off about that again. Um, but I say, like, I've been de- thinking mm-hmm. about this my whole life. Like, my whole life has been interested or about this discussion. It's not, you know, has been in my head reverberating around the meaning of this um, and tie- and links to sexual orientation. Well, and, I mean, intergenerationally. Like, intergenerationally. Even in your mother, this is really deep. Yeah um so i i have it like you know okay exists all of this exists within me which is why i got involved in the discussion because i i feel like i've got a side of the story to tell or a, or my own story to tell which has it's a, you know yeah when you were growing up were you aware of your mother's uh dsd it was like, is that something you knew as a child that she had this kind of surgical correction? I mean, there, there's a lot there. I'm wondering what, at what age did you learn about that? I wasn't, I wouldn't have been aware of that. And I wasn't aware of it until later, like teenage years, because when I became aware that my mum always had to had take tablets every day and what tablets was she taking? So, so you don't really get that until you're like, that little bit older what you know when you start to like you know engage with the routine of daily life um so when I started to Mm -hmm. realize that she was always and and that there was always panic about making sure she had the tablets because she has to have them um which is still like that now 
So like prescriptions or like saying to my, go and get my prescription to my dad <laughs> for and him being like, oh, why did, why are we leaving this to the, why do you always leave this to the last minute, that discussion, you know? And um, oh, please oh, yeah. pharmacy for me. That like, and me being aware that like, and I was always like, what, what are they? Those are my tablets. What do you need them for? And then that's when, because I have this and, you know, and then and I was like looking it up. And I remember when I first kind of, well, that was even like sort of pre-internet, so I couldn't look it up, but she explained it to me. And then there was a time when it became internet because I was, I was in the era of like AOL online, you know, dial up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So I think I looked it up then and read about it and I was like, oh, right. Okay. And then my mum went. Did did you have the Encyclopedia Britannica? Because I was born in eighty two, and that's how yeah. I looked up everything yeah, yeah, for like, a long time. Like, One of like sixty volumes. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, and I always worry about those poor books now. Where are they? Along with all the videos, like so. <laughs> when I was a kid, I always really liked the look. I we didn't have them in our house. And I always thought, when I'm older, I'm going to get an Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> but by the time I was older, that I thought of it, it was like, <laughs> it's like getting a quill. Like, yeah. what the hell? Is <laughs> but I never, I never actually got around to getting one. Yeah. I, I, um, I wanted to ask you, what, what was what your mother taking? What was it hormones, this prescription? And um, yeah, I wonder, is it genetic? Is there a genetic follow through? Like, might your children or, you know, could there be a, a genetic impact? If I if I was to um, have a child with somebody with the same with the same genetic. Um, no, I do know about it, but I'd have to do the like science. But okay. if I was to be with somebody that had that and it's recessive, that would potentially make. Yeah, because it's recessive. So it's recessive in me, so it's recessive. So, and that's what happened with my grandparents. It was recessive in both, and that's what happens. So it's the, it's that part of. I just remember my biology, which I did so badly at. <laughs> I know how things work, but yeah, the, the Mendelian genetics and the little no, like no, no, quadrants—that's what popped into my head. Research homework before, but I can. I can people <laughs> should just Google it: um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia and find it's. It's like the, It's like not. And not, was your mom not, taking hormones? Yeah, she takes hormones. Yeah, they are hormones, but mostly it's the controlling mm. of salt wastage. So there's there's actually. What she can have is an adrenal crisis if she doesn't take them. So it's an adrenal crisis. So it's um, okay. But it it has this oh, wow. effect on. So it doesn't last with the um, like she's a woman, obviously. She had me, um, but it did meet stunt. It's like growth stunting. So she's very very small. So she's four foot nine ten, and then she was told she couldn't have children, not because of the condition, but because she was too. They didn't think she'd be able to carry safely. So there was a lot of that. Um, and then she did the risk of having, of risking getting pregnant anyway, because she was like, well, I want them. So. And I'm getting a picture of your mother. And like, so there she is, four foot nine. And she's been through all of this in, you know, the family moved down to get her treatment. And this is big events happening in her life as a child. And then you coming along, if I'm right, and you um, kind of sorted in yourself. I've seen the film. I'm sure listeners to this episode will watch the film. We'll put it in the links. And, you know, you're very steady in yourself and you're very, very kind of self-contained. 
anybody would be delighted with you as a kid because it's like there's a kid who knows what she's about like you know what I mean I you know I'd be proud to be your mother and um I'm I'm really kind of surprised that she was crying every day because of you that that kind of makes me think oh really I wonder why I don't know because but no maybe because she had to deal with a like a lot with the with the relentless people asking all the time that's probably going to grind you down isn't it to have to like yeah you know and with with me saying I do want to be a boy and they would have known that that happened they knew that 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 people transitioned so maybe she thought that I might and maybe she- I suppose I'm sl- I'm kind of circling that hmm. maybe. I'd love you. I'd love to know, but I maybe she was thinking she she's going to transition. Maybe m- maybe she was thinking that. I don't know. She certainly brought you to the to the gender identity services. Yeah. Can you remember going there? Oh yeah, I remember going there. Yeah, it's weird, but, but the memories I've got are about like. Spill. Well, I've got the I've got, the memories I've got are about like parking the car <laughs> and then going in and the hallways and going into a little room. And talking to the doctor, which was Dr. Decegli, um, and and the discussions, which were just discussions. That's what they were. Like, to me, they were just, you know, my, my parents would be, they'd come down, we'd all go. It's like me, my mum, my dad and my sister would all go. I remember, I don't know why, like, it was not, oh, your dad's just going to take you this time. But every time that we went, we all went. And then they'd take my sister usually to go and do something whilst I had my appointment. And then they come back for me. So it was not like, well, oh, mum's just going to take you or dad's just going to take you. I don't know why they did it that way, but they did. It must have been a big thing that my mum wanted my dad there and my dad wanted to be there. And so then my sister was there too. And it used to like be finishing slightly early so from school I- and driving down from Oxford to London mm-hmm. and then going and having – it's like – How often? Um, Like every three months, I think, or so. Every three months. Okay. So I'm interested if you remember the content of those discussions. And obviously you sit here before us not having medicalized as far as I can presume. So what happened in those sessions and and what was the, quote, treatment uh, recommended to your family? It was just talking. There was just a lot of talking. So, and the talking was, you know, what do you feel about yourself? And I know I used to say things like, my hands are so big, like my got bigger hands than any of the other girls. I've got bigger hands than the boys in my class. I've got the biggest hands and my look at my legs and like, um, I'm really muscly and I'm really strong and all of these things, like that's what we talk about. Like, how do I feel about my body in comparison to other people? Um, and that, you know, and then gender roles and lots about gender roles, which was, and what do I like to do? Like, what do I like to do? And what are they, my activities? And then I I really think, because it's not clear in my head and I, you know, and I'd love to read the notes. If the notes are anywhere, I, I'd love to read the notes, but where they are, I do not know, is that he at the time would have said, well, do you think those roles are fixed or do you think, do you know, do you think anyone owns those roles? And then question me being like, oh, well, maybe nobody does own those roles, you know, all those activities, all those things. But other people are telling me that. So through the course of the time of my therapy, that was the ultimate conclusion when I was discharged, which was 
no, I don't, I don't want to be a boy. Like I don't need to be a boy. What I need is to be allowed to do what the boys are doing. I just need to be allowed to do what the boys are doing. Now that was 92 and we've gone through a whole revolution of, you know, girls can be whatever as well as boys, although we've still got a way to go. Um, Cause I don't know if you've looked at the, <laughs> I always make this point, like, Nobody cares about how many male midwives there are, <laughs> but that's a reason for that. And I understand it, but it's like, there's, there's like 95% female midwives, but we don't tell like men are there at majority of births. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, um, so, but we don't tell men they can be midwives. So, but we need to encourage women to do men's jobs. So it's, it's always that side, but it's not. Oh, it's yeah. not make you know like encourage men to do jobs that are care more caring jobs you don't see that a lot do you know what i mean like we haven't pushed that a lot but we male nannies. yeah male nannies like they still men are still told that they they can't do caring or you know which actually and that's because there's a re- there's reasons behind that which i'm not going into i know why it is but if we were doing that engagement in the right way early off, we would be breaking down who's responsible to do what in the society we're in, like, and who's allowed to do it and who's trusted to do it and who's capable. And, you know, there's a lot, but then again, that discussion with in the clinics and that discussion with Chegley was that sex does matter because when you then go to puberty, this was a point where I had to make a decision and I did make a decision. And not only that, but we talked about medicalization and we talked about the realities of it. And I remember thinking, and I know what I thought, and I don't want to offend anybody when I say it, but I remember thinking that's ridiculous. Like, that's ridiculous. How does that work? Like, we we lived in a very open household, so my dad was always quite naked, like not not in a in my room but in a he's in the bathroom shaving and having his you know so we we were very and we went to um we went on holiday to nudist beaches my parents used to and it was so embarrassing I me and my sister would sit there cringing of course like even at eight nine and you know feeling really like mum and dad are walking to the sea totally naked but we were lived in that household that just didn't have to cover up all the time and I knew what things looked like and I knew how things worked um and you're grasping the whole out of sex work at the time. But I remember thinking about medicalization and surgery. I remember thinking that's ridiculous. Like that path is just really silly. Doesn't sound good. I'll go with that one, even though that sounds the other path is, is not great because I'm not going to get muscles and I'm not going to get taller so that I can play better basketball. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get that stuff compared to, but the other path is also, this just seems silly. <laughs> that's what that's what I thought at nine ten. So that's what I mean when I don't want to offend anybody because that path is right for them. But my dysphoria was, you know, worked out, I guess. But I still have it. I, I always say, I still have okay, it. I, I, I have to say something, and I wonder, Stella, if we're thinking the same thing. <laughs> when we interviewed the the Dutch, we were talking about this patient zero, and Stella, you very rightly pointed out. This is a young girl who was treated by one of the psychiatrists or, or clinicians. And this girl had really serious puberty phobia. She was terrified of beginning puberty. And what strikes me about your story, Ellie, is that you had um, 
much more comfortable relationship with how bodies change, what naked adult bodies look like. You knew what was coming and you didn't seem to have that terror of entering into that phase of life where like your body develops and you know, all of that. So um, I feel very interested in Stella, feel free to jump in. Like I, I feel like that seems to be a really important part of how you were able to have this bravery moving into puberty, whereas some other kids are so scared of growing up that maybe that puberty phobia intermingles with their gender distresses to create like this need to to make that medical decision around puberty. It's interesting. The doctor said you have to make a decision here. And you were like, why would I have to make a decision? I know what's coming, you know, so I'm just interested in me to make the decision as much as I recognized that I was going to be making a decision. I could make a decision. Okay. There were op- I was told there were options to make a decision. There was there was two and you know. Can I can I point out before you go any further, this you were treated by Domenico De Shegli. Am I pronouncing that right? De Sheglio. Yeah. And he founded the Gender Identity Service in nineteen eighty nine. And almost from there everything has happened. He he really was the beginning of, you could say, you know, way back in the day, John Money and Robert Stoller in 1960s, but it had gone. And then you could say, you know, Harry Benjamin and you could say the Harry Benjamin Association. But they were really quite closed down by 1979, 1980. And then De Sheglio came in into, he, he met, funny enough, very reminiscent of the Dutch um, researchers, He met a teenage girl who wanted to be a boy who was suicidal. And um, when she transitioned, it kind of it set him on his path. And he he developed the gender identity development services and founded them in 1989. And he was only three years into it when he met you. And it sounds like some people consider him the devil, but it sounds like he was he gave you good treatment. Yeah, so. I said, like, they said, if you build it, it will come, they will come, won't they? So did he found a treatment service that was necessary and that is really helpful? Or did he find something that has gone on to be, you know, that creates his patients? So um, I said, like, he's like the Mark Zuckerberg of gender identity. So, you know, Facebook's fantastic. And we've all connected and I'm still friends with 700 people that I once met in a bar or something, but or maybe even never met. But I also have all my, you know, Facebook Messenger and I can set up contacts and people can get in touch with me that um, that I'd never get still be in touch with. It's something that has revolutionised the world, but it's had it's really, you know, it's got really bad, dark things that happen because of it, like data capture. You know, now they send me, I just have to talk about a trampoline on here and I'll have an ad for a trampoline on my Facebook if I go and look on there. You know, it's disturbing. So, mm-hmm. um Mm. so you know i'm sure i think his intentions were good but i think the longer term outcomes maybe now are worrying in what happened to the patient referral population rise in conjunction with social media and why they didn't ask what was happening or what ask questions about that earlier haven't asked questions about it and uh, arguably you know, you know, something can start very well. Maybe the Dutch started very well. And as as you grow success, doctors and arrogance are often well knitted together. 
and they get a few well, they get a few successes as we all do and they think I'm, I'm engaged what? to a doctor so I, I I know what doctors are uh, like but my doctor is not that kind of doctor but uh, she works with plenty of them so I've I've heard enough to last me a lifetime about um, how doctors can be but in all different fields so um, you know you get it they you doctors will get into things because they do want help, but some of them get into it purely for status and control and the fact that they've got people's lives in their hands with a sense of power. Um, I don't want to do him down because I, I think because definitely because of the engagement I had with Dr. Jagley was really positive. Um, and he, and he did the watchful waiting thing, but he's now basically not linked. He's beyond the service now he's in his retirement. He's, he's sort of an honorary trustee it's not his service now and it hasn't been his service. In fact, I think the whole um, or in, way that the, the service went was the point where he said, I've done my bit now, over to you, um, and left it, you know, as the service. It's been since about 2012, 2013, because he talks about that on, um, there's a lecture series of his on YouTube. Yeah. So... Ellie, how many years were you seen at the at the service I, I, before you were kind of just sent along your way to live like, life? Only for about one to two years, but um, that's because I worked my stuff out pretty quickly, and that was because I had a really stable base outside of just the gender dysphoria. Like I had really good friendship groups. I came from a very stable background and place. You know, my parents were together. Um, yeah, so I had a stable family unit. We were financially stable because my dad was a solicitor and my mum, she worked for the NHS for 40 years. Um, you know, so my parents were just doing all the, whether they liked it or not, they were like, you know, they did everything to provide the most, you know, best environment children can grow up in, really. And yeah, same with my friends. I had friends from like, I had a majority male group of friends, but then I had a couple of girls that I became really, really close with. One in particular, still my friend. I introduced her to her husband. So still my, one of my best friends. And she was oh. my sister's best friend at the time's older sister. So she was one year older than me, but we were in the same school when mm. her and my mum, mm -hmm. her mother and my mum became really close and still our friends. So she was somebody that was one year older than me, totally different character, really, really into presenting a certain way to attract male attention, let's say. And she won't mind me saying that. And I, we were totally different, but she, she just loved me. She just, we just played, we just spend loads of time, hang out all the time together. And that was a different influence. So because she was around from the age of me being about, mm -hmm. mostly about like 12. And we we played on the same football team. We played on like five-a-side football and her mum coached the team. Okay. And that was an influential female friend I had when I didn't have many like close ones. As I started to enter puberty and I know that she gave me my first, um, when I started my period, she was one who was teaching me how to, uh, how I should use a tampon. <laughs> what tampons were like for example mm -hmm. so I had that one like mm -hmm. connection to that and what guided me like the day that I first started my period ever because this is stark in my mind 
I was getting my hair buzz cut in the living room by our, we used to have a, a hairdresser's used to come into the house and yeah, some of the students come and cut my hair at home. So she cut my mum's hair, then she cut my hair, then she cut my sister's hair. And so I was having my like shave up, which I still, I do have it now, shave up and, you know, short back and sides. And then I suddenly realised like something weird's going on, you know, that thing. And then I, so I, I stopped and I, I ran upstairs and I was like, oh, well, um, you know, oh. I think I came down and I was like, Mum, I think, you know, this thing, that thing's happened. I said it. So, so she was like, oh, right, okay. Um, <laughs> so she sorted me out. She gave me the stuff. Just go and put that, you know, in pad and stick it on my pants. And I was just, and I remember that, oh, my first thing, feeling of that was like, this is, ah, oh, what, this is what happens now for like, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> the, you know, <laughs> you have to wear this thing. I, I just remember, so I was really angry about it. And then my dad bought me a guitar case as a congratulations. <laughs> so, oh, that's so did you? I hope you had a guitar. You didn't just get an empty, <laughs> case. empty case. No, I did. I had guitars because I was like, that was it. My, I love rock and roll. I played basketball and did karate. I did all this sport stuff like that that was... I was mostly the only girl doing it. That's what I'm saying. Like there were other girls in my karate class, but they were mostly women. Like they were older women doing self-defense. It was, there was just boys, young boys, young boys, me, and then a couple of older women and stuff like that. So I, I did all those activities and my dad, yeah, I did have guitars. So my dad thought, oh, okay, you a guitar case. You need a guitar case. Very practical man. See, very, very practical man. Well done. You've started your period. Yeah. Here's a guitar case. And yeah. I was like, <laughs> so um, That's so lovely. But yeah, so um, I'm still thinking of Dishegli. Dishegli, yeah. Dishegli and and yeah, so he, he I keep on pronouncing that wrong. He he was carrying out watchful waiting and you were a product as such of watchful waiting and it it went well. And it sounds like it was gentle pleasant therapy that it was compassionate and exploratory and it it worked. And I, I wonder today, would that be called conversion therapy? I also wonder today how you would fare, even with your lovely family, even with the family that was so solid, if you follow me, and they really were so solid behind you. I can't. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, how much the context of the time mattered. I can't answer the question because I didn't have this thing. And this means this the phone. I think this does everything. And I'm addicted to it now. I'm addicted to it now a lot of the time. <laughs> and I it, it and it disrupts my relationships with people and it disrupts my relationships with my partner. And it's you know, and there's things that I quite we wish I could really you know, people have got more self control than me, definitely over it. And if I have that personality now, probably I would have had it then. I'm sure I would have had it then. You know? Um I like to think I wouldn't, but I have no idea. You know, I think it's and and not just that. I I just think about to your friends and the people in your life. They, for the most part, it sounds like they just let you be yourself. Even your female friend, you guys were very very different, and her act of compassion was just treating you like another teammate or another friend, helping you with your hair. And had you both had the phone, the thing that you are talking about now, 
perhaps she would have believed that the compassionate thing for her to do was to ask you, do you want to be a boy? Shall I call you a boy? When are you going to transition? Because these seem to be the, the common things that young people talk with each other about when they do notice some gender nonconformity. So not only the addictive properties of it, but the, the way these ideas have kind of seeped into everybody's consciousness and changed the way we do interact with each other and how we think about gender. Yeah, nobody ever needed to ask me what I was going to be or how or my labels for anything, because the only people who asked me labels were pe- were strangers outside of our environment, not people I was trying to be, be friends with or anything. They they knew what I was, and it and also none of it mattered anyway. So. You know, nobody was cajoling me in in directions or anything. It was just about what we did. Everything was just about activity. It's not. <laughs> it wasn't about an identity thing. It was. Yeah, my dysphoria was definitely involved. My young dysphoria was definitely involved. Um, and later, the questions about my sexuality that was another one because I was asking myself those those sort of questions as well as were was everybody else that was around me that's what you do but we weren't we weren't trying to pick like a profile thing you know we didn't have to describe ourselves we didn't have to put a sheet out that said this is me so that when i i can interact with as that person you know i wasn't having to interact mm-hmm. as that person that i've picked and then if my lot my in right. the workings change, I don't need to change that either. And I don't have to have the shame of having decided to be it and then changing it after. Or we didn't. We just evolved through. And the conversations that were had were just about it was I do still feel it was like one of the luckiest times to be the nineties weren't great for everything, but it was one of the luckiest times to be um to be growing up like that. Like I was thinking about the sorts of TV shows that we were watching and that kind of thing. I, I was in 97 when I was 13 and Buffy the Vampire Slayer came out, which is something I've been watching recently, which was a female superhero. And it was that sort of thing <laughs> that started to be good representation of women doing the sort of things that I wanted to do and giving me power to be a woman doing them too, right? Um, I don't think yeah. that a lot of that was there before that. So it was just then more, yeah. but it, it felt like an innocent time to me. And I, I don't know if it feels like that for children, for children who are young these days. I feel there's too much pressure to pick something, to be something and to look a certain way or to, to project an image on here because you have, because it asks you the questions. If you go on to do the profile, it asks you. And if you ask something, yeah. it feels that you, you have to give an answer, right? But what if yeah, you, yeah like, completely. By the way, you were, were you asked? Were you given a diagnosis? That's why I love to see the notes. I, I were you given I a diagnosis told, or anything? I expect my parents were. I expect my parents were said that. Oh well, she's definitely. You know, they. I'm sure that they would have said she's definitely had gender dysphoria or she's got gender dysphoria, which I did because I know I did because it was how I felt about my body. And I said the other day because I talked to some people, mostly on social media stuff about this, but. I'll still say I have it. Like there'll be days when I'll be in the shower or I'll be in, you know, doing things or I'll be naked and I'll catch myself and I'll still think that I wish I had, you know, a, a male chest or I wish I had male properties. 
all the time. It still happens. It's, I just live with it. It's just a tickle in the back of the brain. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. So Ellie, you know, you have this tickle in the in the back of your brain of gender dysphoria. So it's it's always there. What does that look like and how does how do you manage it, I guess? Uh so I catch myself in moments when I'm you know, everybody looks in the mirror and looks at their physique. And certainly as you get older as well, you, you evaluate yourself. And this isn't just me, but everybody does this, I think. So it's a universal feeling. It's something that I really want to convey that it's not just something that is dominated. If you have gender issues, it's it's everybody has a relationship to their gender, everybody. And it's on a scale. It's on a scale. So you know, and if it, you feel it's dysphoric, maybe you're a woman or a man that's never questioned whether you should have the parts that you have or what they should look like. You just accept it because that, you know, then you don't have any dysphoria to do with gender, but everybody has a body dysmorphia, can have body dysmorphia. Um, and so I still have those moments where I feel like I would have been better if I had been male. I, I still have those moments where I look at my physique, even though I'm going to be 39 years old tomorrow, and say I, I still kind of wish or think that I would have been better with a male body. And um, I, I don't know why, but it could be because I have a very muscular physique. It could be because I don't see myself as ever having had really strong feminine attractive qualities. Um, you know, it's, it's not something I can answer as to why I have that feeling or sensation in myself, but I will catch myself in a mirror. I will catch myself changing. I will, you know, it's, it's, it will be when I, particularly I wear shorts in the summer, but I hate to expose my legs quite often. And that's because they're still very muscly legs. My, my legs were the thing that really opened my mind to or made I rec recall being between four five six seven and seeing my legs as different to other girls legs that was one of the strong things I had naturally huge calf muscles that just I, I didn't you know where do they come from I don't know where and I, only when I became older did I see other women having the same muscular physique um, you know, in in sport or in you know, let's say, looking at female rugby players or footballers or with that same physique. When I became, you know, part of socialisation, where I got to experience that. But when I was very small, I know that I felt aside or separate or different. I definitely felt that, and so I can't. You know, it's very difficult to pinpoint how it comes about and when. But I still have these moments, and how I deal with it is, I still say, you know, I made the decision. Um, that I would not, you know, I, I ruled out transition at a certain age. I ruled out transition at a certain age. I still rule out transition 
um, continue to rule it out because I value my female. My body is sexed female. I believe that the healthiest thing for me to do is to go with my natural, you know, waning of physical strength that happens to every single person on the planet as they age. And I do not want to do anything to my body that might affect that hormonally or surgically. Um, so I still put that first as a priority because I, I believe that we should always prioritize as healthy, be as healthy as possible. So that's why I, that's how I, mit you know, mitigate it with why wouldn't I change it? And also because I don't, I personally do not believe that I would give myself that, that, you know, I would not present, it would not match as to what I want naturally, which would be to have that magical power to know what it's like to be a man, mm -hmm. to have everything that gives to let me, I, you know, and I've talked about height. I'm five foot four. I'm 163 centimeters. The average man, not all men, but the average man is much taller than me. And the, the thing that I desired in masculinity was to have height. And I, I will never have height, no matter what I would do. I would never have height. So there are things that it would never give me. So why, if it would never give me those things, I'd just say to myself, it will never give you those things. So you wouldn't do it. I won't choose it. That's basically how it feels. That's how it feels. I, could yeah. I just ask, there was something there, there was a bit of a jump that I, I found very interesting because I was I was nodding along when you were saying, you know, gender dysphoric, you, 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 a little niggle, it's there, but you're well able to handle it by the sounds of it. And correct me if I'm wrong. And it's it's just a, a niggle. It's a stone in your shoe on some level. And it's there and you handle it. And then you said it was my legs that always triggered me. And then you said something surprising because you said my legs were what made me feel not feminine. I thought you were going to say I was proud of my legs because they were so manly. But you, you didn't say that at all. It's like I hate my legs because they're manly. If we follow me or maybe I've completely misunderstood you. At times, I'm proud of my legs. At other times, I'm not proud of them. It depends on, I don't know, maybe sometimes I've been complimented and I'll be complimented by my partner, my lovers, or, you know, people that are an intimate space with. And then at other times, it might be somebody else saying, God, your legs are muscly and in, in a context that I don't want that don't want that to be um that I don't want them to be observed or commented on by that individual because they're not somebody that has that entitlement or should be making that comment does that make sense you know mm. they're a stranger or they're somebody that I'm not close to um yeah and it's an observation rather than a compliment potentially it's not an intimate compliment I, um yeah so it depends on that so there's times when I am proud and I and I and I do I, I train I go to the I'm, I'm do a, a, a physical job I, I work on mus my musculature for strength and for because that's what I have and I, I don't want to be strong in them but when I was a child it didn't feel you know you don't you don't have a relationship necessarily with with yeah. working out you're a kid so right. it was different when I was small to have this natural mus musculature you know to have a very strong I, position. I wanted to to just comment on this, because I find it so interesting how the context and the framing, of course, changes your experience of, let's say, and I mean, muscularity exists on a spectrum. And like, as context, I'm really into to exercise and weight training specifically. And I'm in a block of my training right now that's strength focused. So when you're in that mindset, you're really thinking actually about muscular development. Mm. And I wish my legs would grow and get bigger. <laughs> But it's, it depends on the framing, because if you are thinking about, oh, that person made 
a derogatory comment about my muscularity. That means something very different than, like you said, your lover or your partner mm. admiring your muscularity. So I just find it so interesting that even when we talk about gender dysphoria, we almost have to ask as a follow-up question, like, in comparison to what? Like, you're feeling insecure about your traits in comparison to what and in what context, mm. which really throws a wrench in the whole DSM diagnostic criteria because it doesn't really take into account things like context or how old you are or how do you understand, you know, health versus appearance versus aesthetics. Like, there are all of these interesting questions wrapped up in this discussion i just find it mm. in gender dysphoria is not just one static thing no and it changes over time and as i you know if i talk about desistance which is what i experienced from about 12 years on 12 years old onwards desistance and and i've been thinking about it as well quite recently that you know also i was never affirmed in the you're born in the wrong body belief let's say that never that was never done mm. for me so my parents didn't affirm it and when I went to the clinic when I went to, to GIDS they never affirmed it so I was never affirmed I was always you know still in the mindset that I was female and I had a female body and my body was, was sex female and when I did go through the therapy and when I contextualized my relationship to my body and when I then started to desist the feelings waned but it was a really difficult period from about 13 to 17 where I couldn't where I was still figuring out how much I would present female and how and dressing you know still covering my body in very baggy clothing still still hiding myself or revealing bits and glimpses I had I, I remember a stark moment being on the, our school stage where I used to wear cut-off tees and I had not yet put a bra on, but I now had breasts. And I remember realizing that they, my breasts could be seen through the cut-off T-shirt and wondering, you know, and thinking, you know, having this shocking, you know, people now can see my, my I've got breasts and people can see them through here if I'm not wearing a sports bra. Um, and to this day now, somebody might say, well, that's, that's okay. You know, that's in, in this day, now I think modern modern perspective might be that it's okay, but me then I, it wasn't okay. Um, that prompted to go and start wearing sports bras, but I never have worn female bra bras. I don't wear bra bras ever. And if you ask many many gay women, they never wear proper bras. They can't wear proper yeah. bras. They have yeah. an essence of dysphoria about wearing proper bras, and we only will ever wear sports bras. And wearing a proper bra for anything, occasion, anything like that makes us feel pretty discomfort. I, I feel a lot of discomfort in that moment. Um, so, and then, and uh, probably this is universal to other women. I bet they hate wearing bras, but I, I don't know. I don't wear them often enough to know. I just wear, I live in sports bras. Um, and I always have since that moment onwards. The other moment I had was going to a friend's birthday party. And um, it was, it was going to be, now, I don't remember if she said, oh, it's going to be this fancy dress thing. It's going to be, I don't really mind what you wear, but if you want to, we were this close friendship. I'm still friends with her today. And she said, but if you want to wear a dress that day, I'll help you find one. You know, and I was <laughs> like, I remember having this, how will people relate to me if I do put this dress on? 
will it change my relationship with people, my friends, everybody, or and you know, will they accept it? Will they make comment? Will, you know, it was a it was a bold moment to do. So I went off and found yeah. this dress. Funny story. I went off and found this dress. It was her sixteenth birthday. I went off and found this dress that I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this properly. So this was this like slinky thing. It was completely made like, imagine what a mermaid's tail. It was like that, right? So <laughs> I, went, I went all out on this day and it was very, very uncomfortable. I remember how uncomfortable it was. And, um, and I turned up and my friend had the exact same dress. <laughs> And it was her birthday. And it was her birthday. We picked the same. So you stole without... the show in many ways. <laughs> we just got on with it. We just got on with it. She went, oh. <laughs> when I said, when I said, maybe you want you got to wear a dress on my birthday. I didn't mean wear the dress I'm wearing on my birthday. You wear my dress. So we had the same dress, and we laugh about that till till this oh, day that we. That's incredible. <laughs> I just ask another question about that because it was so interesting because sometimes I find a lot of people argue with me and others there's no such thing as gender dysphoria and it's just body dysmorphia and I've always gone "Mm, well whatever I experienced wasn't body dysmorphia although I can see why people can perceive it at that it was and I'm going to annoy people probably but it did feel like a an all over rejection, just like you very evocatively described there, an all over mm. d- d- rejection of feminine, of girl, of of of, and it, it was it was let's say breasts and stuff like that, but it wasn't as well. It was a more an all over vibe, which I know sounds very woo woo. And then I I I uh, and forgive me, but then for me, uh, what moved me out, and I'm wondering, did it m- maybe move you out, and was it a different path? For me, what moved me out, I think, from that place was the kind of the powerful feeling of um, being sexually attractive to other people. If you follow me, that was just so shocking that other people thought I was very sexy, for example. And me going, oh, right. okay." And it kind of renegotiated my relationship with my body as such. Other people's adoration of my body brought me around to my body yeah and then and I had that attention starting to happen onwards from 14 or so but at, no later than that much later than that but um I started to experience really strong same-sex attraction from 13 onwards definitely you know vividly crush after crush after crush on different girls all of whom were straight so, and I knew they were straight. You, you know, we sort of joke about gaydar. Gaydar is a thing. Gaydar exists. You know, you know, no matter what you say, we don't know why. It's another element of research I'd love to understand about how how homosexual, same-sex attracted brains work. You know, it's still unexplained. But I, you know, would know that those girls were not, you know, and they and they those are the ones I had crushes on. So I never, you know, would do anything about them apart from trying to be in the exact same space as that that girl every single moment mm. I possibly could. <laughs> yeah. um, and the first attention I got from and first um, sexual intimacy I had was with men. But that's because they were the ones that were coming to me and women weren't coming to me. Uh, not that I knew of. Maybe there were girls that I had that were trying to, to be near to me, but mm-hmm. I didn't realise it, you know. Um and yeah, so and that, that was never really for those relationships with men. It was because they were showing interest and they were pursuing, but it wasn't the thing I truly 
necessarily wanted, but it was it was giving me a sense of, you know, it gives you that sense of more confidence. It starts to, you know, it's not really what I wanted. What I wanted was the girls that I couldn't have, the women that I couldn't have. And might, but, um, might that be why, because I, I'm not same-sex attracted, I'm heterosexual, might that be why, I don't know, but might that be why it left me, but it didn't leave you, that lingering... Don't know. That's something we can't well, answer. I mean, Again, I... we, we, these are things you can't answer if you just you just subscribe certain things and and you subscribe certain terminologies and everything. You cannot answer these questions if you've got preconceived ideas of everything. You have to you have to talk about it and you have to explore it and you can't mm-hmm. do it within confines of being told that it's right or wrong to talk about it in any certain ways and you're right. offending people. You, you, how are you going to ever I... learn or how are we ever going to understand? the reasons behind any of this or, or you know, and, and it's also individual experiences. Everybody, this is just, I'm just talking about my experience, but that's not true for everybody else. They've got different ones. But you, (laughs) but you did say something that I've, I've observed too, which is a lot of, uh, and I'm going back a little bit, but a lot of gay women, for example, don't wear bras and only wear sports bras and have this kind of really uncomfortable feeling when putting themselves in quote unquote very feminine clothing or feminine appearance. Mm. So there's something there which of course yeah each individual experience is different but there's something there that feels like a common denominator. Mm-hmm. And I think um you know if anything your experience is very common for for gay gay people and gay women that like you have these unrequited crushes that you recognize will never go anywhere and that's really difficult and heartbreaking and if anything i wonder you know kids growing up today would that make them even more dysphoric like the only people that are approaching me are males and i don't like that and actually everybody that i like tends to be attracted to males if i were a male like you know that that kind of rationale i don't know what what do you think may maybe yes but then there's more uh there's more sort of suggestion now that you can you can be open more open in your sexuality younger and mm, and mm-hmm. declare yourself attracted or you know whatever and so but they they like to pretend let's not that some that we didn't have girls that experimented lots with bisexuality yeah. that, that turned out not to be at all uh, you know, ultimately defining same-sex attracted. And I see the same thing happening with gender. I see people trying it on and saying that they're boys, potentially, and they're trying, you know, I see that same thing. It's like we've moved into a next level with, with gender identity where they're trying it on. Instead of trying on bisexuality, which was a lot of the girls around me were doing that, and we pretend that that didn't happen, but it did. Boys didn't do it because that's even greater level of, of homophobia that's, that comes at them. But the girls, when I was in the 90s and onwards, 90s to 2000s, they were experimenting, kissing their friends at parties. They were, they when we started to drink a bit and play around with drinking and have parties, that that's what happened. But many of those girls never would have gone on to have fully-fledged gay relationships and lesbian relationships. They They did it as a phase during adolescence and then they stopped doing it after about well most of my cohort was around going to university or just after just before that or when they got boyfriends at 17 and 18 and those relationships would stick they they stopped doing it 
So we like to pretend that didn't happen, that, that girls don't do that, that girls don't play around with their identity really a lot during during that, that era, that time of development. But they do. And that's what they're still doing now. They're still playing around with their identity. Only now the new thing to play with is your is your gender. It's not your sexuality because we've accepted they accepted gay people in the Western in Western society. So so it's been because it's accepted, it's not taboo anymore to muck about right. with. But this is the new frontier. There's a new yes. frontier, so let's play around with that frontier. And unfortunately yeah. you can't Katie... take about playing around with hormones. You can't talk take about exactly. playing around with surgery. But you can yeah. take a back kissing a girl in the back of a you know in the back of a nightclub, and move on mm-hmm. from that, and it never affects your future. Do you see? Y- yes, yes. Katie Herzog called this lesbian until graduation. Yeah, that was her title for this. Yeah. and you're you're so right. This phenomenon. Yeah. Do you do you want to comment a little bit about how coming into your sexuality or you know you talked about meeting other gay women presumably as you got older did that help you to kind of um accept the the niggle in the back of your brain you know did did anything about your sexuality contribute to you just kind of settling in with this experience yeah eventually it was a it was a difficult road for me lots of lots of girls like particularly like a first girlfriend I had she was just she knew exactly what she was she had you know never she'd had one boyfriend and ruled it out from the moment on that that just wasn't the right fit for me it was a bit more of a a longer pathway and yeah university was the first time when I managed we sort of landed in a group of many same-sex attracted and definitively same-sex attracted women and then through my 20s that kind of you know that solidified as my as my sexuality um and i i went on to play on in uh, roller derby was this great resource of meeting gay women and i did that and that's where i met my partner now because you know it's uh it was a a source of me if you want to find if you want it became this untold secret like if you want to find uh you've got yeah. you've got rugby you've got sport <laughs> but roller derby is the place to go so we, um, <laughs> I started playing roller derby and I met my partner there. That was when I was 28. And um, we, it, it was still a you know, fluctuating thing for me. It was still fluctuating. And I'd sort of still call myself bisexual ultimately because I don't rule out the male body as a sex partner. But my romantic desire and my romantic compatibility sits with women more than men. Um, it's something I've worked out. I'm just, again, I'm just an individual. Mm-hmm. But coming to terms mm-hmm. with the whole thing, I wouldn't have said, I didn't admit to my family that I was properly um, same-sex attracted until I was 25. So yeah, so that took a long yeah. time. Now, like I said, let, people can do it much quicker or they define it online through themselves or they, you know, they're, they're, they're faster, mm-hmm. I think, a lot now. It's, there's... Because so much improvement was made, so much improvement was made, and we we now have the the right to marry. But that didn't, you know, before I was out, I didn't have the right to marry when I came out properly. I still didn't have right. that that legal right then. So, you know, yeah. all this stuff has been fought for and it's been achieved. And the question now was, what you do when it's been achieved? Uh, yeah. And what's, you know, like I said, what do you do when it's been achieved? But it doesn't mean that then you need to start to tell people 
more, you know, you, you can go past a certain point where you're you're now influencing what people think rather than allowing them to develop it for themselves, I think. Because we have influencers. You, now we have influencers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have right. it, I didn't have influencers. Yeah, you really had to go internal and figure things out and use your life experience and your real relationships to sort through this, which yeah. is just such a drastically different, drastically different story than like the 10 year old girl who's been online during COVID. And after a few weeks of Google searches, she says, Mom, I'm a lesbian. And, and well, it's it just it's such a different experience and obviously much more maturity and time. Let I say you know, this about about online, complete online kind of reading and and listening to that voice is is no is not much more different than than a mental health problem of of being like schizophrenia. If you're listening to lots of different voices and you're reading it and you're not actually they're not generated from yourself and you're not actually having a, a back and forth conversation with somebody in your near proximity, your actual physical being can it's that seems to me like an induced psychosis to something but I've had problems with my mental health and I've had moment in time where I was talking to my own friends with a with a mental health problem when I had a mental health manic episode I was talking to my own friends and they were not in the room with me but with the, again I go back to the phone and the device you can be talking to people they're not in the room with you you can be talking to people and all they are the, you know, they're only interpreting what you put onto a screen and then you're interpreting what they put back and it it can elevate and elevate and elevate, you know. And these discussions are socially comforting to to children forming their ideas about themselves. But that can also be, imagine that there's also a massive risk that that can be damaging for somebody to be leading them in a certain direction and they're not leading themselves, you know. That's right. So wow, you have what to be really analogy. careful about that. Yeah. And the fact that that's been unfettedly happened for this generation of kids. We've seen how yeah. that's gone. We've seen how an 18-year-old can pick up a, a, a ARA rifle and walk into a school because of things that are happening mm-hmm. mental health-wise. But we can't see how it's happening in, in gender. We can't see how it's happening in, in identity as well. The mass identity crisis going on. It's a mass yeah. mental health crisis going on because of, un, yeah. you know, this is a drug. Social media is a drug. So you give drugs to children. They could use that in a mm-hmm. positive way or a negative way. It is a drug. It's addictive. Mm-hmm. It has all the mm-hmm. same qualities of drugs. But we don't see it. We don't treat it like a drug. Yeah. Wow. So I didn't have that. I didn't have a drug in my head. I had... I had my own thoughts in my head. I had my own, I had my comfort. I had my family support. I had my friendship, my network to to reference off. I didn't have a drug yeah. in my head influencing yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, there's there's a lovely YouTube video, which we mentioned, and it will be in the notes of you and you were very comfortable. And is there any last thoughts you have around just, there's a few things coming up, I think, um, that you wanted to flag and a, a couple of, pointers about maybe that youtube video or i don't think it was a youtube video it's from the 90s and in a way it's kind of precursor to the celebration of the trans kid it was it was much more respectful kind of analysis what was the context so they came to my school um the bbc used to do these short films it was a series that was on um bbc two saturday morning tv that kids used to have we used to have saturday morning tv 
um, that was for for eight to nine to ten year olds. It was you know. So they they would um, they the school decided to to invite producers to canvas us and you put in a little form and you said what you might want to talk about and I you know don't really understand how they picked my thing because I don't really know how I pitched it but I think I just said I'm I'm do- I'm different from other people I I'm a girl but I wear I wear all this stuff you know and I I like to play with boys I only play with boys and I only do this and I you know and for some reason I don't know if that's exactly what I said I honestly couldn't remember but I know that they came and they they said oh they've picked your application out and I was like oh well now I have to really do this thing so I was given a camera and a battery it was an old school you know you you put it on you carry it around and you properly you know and I was given charging docks and you know film and and they said you know have this camera for three weeks and film um and talk about yourself so that's what i did um and then they come to the house they came to the house and they brought all their editing equipment and they edited it down and what they edited down and eventually you know showed was the film that you see um after all of this had started and all these these this well People don't like to acknowledge that it's a debate, but there's there's a court case going on right now between two charities involved in this that means it definitely is a debate because you end up in a court of law over some stuff like this about this topic, then it's a debate, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, so they they came to my house, they edited the film with me, um, and it was shown on the BBC, uh, and it was shown twice, and I got paid £250 for each time. So that was good, because I was like, yeah, I could buy a surfboard with that, you know. And <laughs> um, and I got the – so I got the rights to it from the BBC archives um, to, to, to put it up, because I just thought people – would see because I remember being I was so excruciatingly like, I was so embarrassed by it I was so embarrassed by it at the time I was so embarrassed by it when I was 15 16 17 early 20s are still embarrassed by this film and now I'm like actually this is sort of captures the kind of child that would be involved in this now actually this captures how if my parents had said Yes, you are a boy. We believe and we affirm you're a boy. And then I was told everybody by everybody else influencing me and I had a smartphone or I was on the line and everybody was telling me that made have made that decision for me that I made myself with the right clinician at the time. You know, Um, so that's that's why I put that film out and I tried to do it very tactfully to say you can watch this and make your own mind up, but this is a vignette of history. This is a five-minute vignette of history to say this isn't new. This isn't something that right. was. This isn't something that's just come about. And and, and people agree that they agree this isn't new. This isn't something that's just come about. Yeah. What has just come about is a four thousand percent increase in referrals to it. What has come about is the number of children that are taking hormones in their teenage years. What has you know that was not what was happening why is it happening now yeah. we 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 can't stop not asking that question and not yeah. being allowed to find the answers so, so i put the film yeah. out to show people i made sure there were no comments because i do not want people to start arguing about it mm-hmm. it's not you know they can make their own mind up as to seeing what they see in my film but my film yeah. shows a confident i was confident well i was confident because I was confident that I was, I was still a really, really 
amazing human being <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was having fun I was just a kid having yeah. fun and I was out yeah. and you could see how much activity I was doing you know you could see yeah what you I was were doing. busy I was a busy mm-hmm. kid my, my parents couldn't <laughs> keep up with they were so like you know my poor dad just had to finish work come home drive me to another activity after another activity after another activity which was all pretty much physically based you know um yeah yeah so I think the things that I was doing were healthy I was expending energy. I was part of teams. I was, I was getting health. I think I was getting healthy influences and I was supported and I was loved. And I knew all of that. I knew all of it. And I, I wasn't looking for it elsewhere. That's right. So, uh, fortunately, lastly, I want to ask you about an upcoming book. I want to make sure to give you a space to talk about this. Hannah Barnes is writing a book. Can you say more about this? I know you were interviewed extensively for it. Yes. So Hannah's writing a book or has written now a book which will be published shortly. Um, It's about the gender identity service, the Tavistock Clinic, um, which, you know, people can look at what has recently taken place there in, and again they're um, arguing whether the Tavistock is being closed down because of um, its failings or it's being closed down because it's not providing an adequate service to the demand. Um, I'd say both is true um, and she's written this, she's been researching, this is new that she's done this, she's been researching this for, for many years um, and she interviewed me because I was there and I contacted her to say that she should look into it and she was like well I'm actually writing a book on it um and so and then she said can I interview you so I said of course and then she said because I went to the University of Essex so she found this study so I was followed up in my university years about 2005 by a PhD candidate that was working for the Tavistock who wrote this paper and I'm in it so that was one follow-up they'd done but when they, when I spoke to Hannah, she said that out of, you know, up to 100 patients of the clinic, she'd only found 10. This researcher, when she found me, had only found 10 of us that were able to be contacted and, and followed through. So, you know, to, mm. to find out where we are now, having having gone to yeah. Tavistock in, when I was there, 92, 3, to follow me up in, in 2005 and find out, you know, was I still gender dysphoric? Had I transitioned? Was I gay or straight? You know, all these questions that were, were asked. But I, that was basically the context of this paper that this, uh, I, I, I haven't got her name in my head now, but I, it'll be in the book. Um, and so uh, Hannah interviewed me for the book, um, which should be coming out. It's just uh, about that, about the lack of data, about the failure to capture the data, about the lack of follow up from the work that Tavistock was doing from the early 90s onwards, which was when the clinic was founded. Um, and it's going to be showing how they continue to not follow up their patients, mostly. Um, that's at least the, the bit that Hannah's, you know, alluded to, this, that they, they've not followed up. So, and it's very unusual in such a, an experimental treatment base to not continue to follow up on your patients after treatment and to which way people go. So, you know, that's going to be interesting to read. Um, as to what Hannah has found in her research. Yeah, I've heard so much about this book. I've heard loads of people who've been interviewed. I think it's going to be a cracker. I think it's going to be a really, really good book. It's going to be a real takedown mm. by the sounds of it of, of the Tavistock in a very comprehensive, forensic kind of manner. 
Um, this has been really, well, really fascinating. Is there any last things you want to say um, before we close up? But it's, it's been really real education about it all. Um, no, I just want people to try and maintain more of an open mind that the truth is somewhere between the two extremes <laughs> of everything, because it always is between two extremes. So, you know, um, there's one side accusing certain people of being completely transphobic and hateful and all of the rest of it. And there's another side accusing them of being deliberate monsters that don't want the best for their children and child abusers. And these are not both, these are not the, these are not truth. The truth is that there is complications and reasons and factors affecting this whole thing when children are having, you know, when children are confused or worried about their identity and that leading into being gender specifically, mm -hmm. there is a truth between the two polarised opinions. And if more people were allowed to say, <laughs> and let's look at fact and let's look at evidence and ev let's evidence it and let's look at science, mm -hmm. then the, the, we'll find the actual best pathway for dealing with it. That's what needs to be yeah. allowed. But you can't shut it down and not talk about it. You have mm -hmm. to continue to mm -hmm. talk about it and you have to ask more children what they actually think that's not just Reddit posts. <laughs> yeah. No. Wow, well said. Thank you so much, Ellie. We appreciate your time on the show. It was great. It was brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 